Let's go over to uh, Psalm 22. We've been working our way through this psalm for the last few weeks, and we will continue to do so, as it is a a psalm that uh, pictures well the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. On the uh, website, the messages in this series I call The Anguish and Joy of a Soul. And I thought that was kind of interesting that uh, I had thought that through as I studied this and thought it, thought about it. And today I, I pulled off a commentary off the shelf and looked at it, and that's the exact title that they had in the commentary. They said, well, it, they left off just the phrase of a soul, but the anguish and joy was the caption they used to describe this chapter too. So I felt pretty good that I, I matched a commentary on that one. But uh, here we are in Psalm 22, looking at the crucifixion of Christ. And and David wrote this many, many years before, uh, almost 900 years or so before Christ was to be crucified. But look at the words and and realize how similar they are to what Christ experienced. I'm going to read, starting in verse 1, and I'm going to read all the way through verse 21 tonight, and then we'll have a word of prayer says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day and you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head, saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, because he delights in him. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan had encircled me. They opened wide their mouth at me as a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. My bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers have encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword and my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You answer me. Heavenly Father, we come back to you again this evening as we approach your word and ask for your help that you may help us to understand. Teach us this passage, we pray, especially as it uh, reflects the sacrifice of our Savior on our behalf. We we know, Lord, how we do not merit your love. We have not earned it. 
We have not uh, somehow convinced you of loving us, but you loved us while we were yet sinners, and your Son died for us. And we're here tonight with thankful hearts, with hearts that are wanting and willing to look again at a cross, even though it's such a, a horrid thing to us, it's something we cherish as we have sung, because it speaks of the Savior's love and what he was willing to do for us. Impress that upon our hearts here again tonight. We cannot get enough of that, Lord. We need to see it again. So help us in our hour as we study this uh, passage through. Challenge us with it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I've been working through this Sunday morning and Sunday night, I'm aware that some of you have not been able to join us for Sunday nights to uh, follow with some of the passages. The last time we were together, we were finishing up with uh, verse number uh, 19, no, 18. Let me put on my glasses. Yeah, 18, where they divide up the garments. And verse 17 said they look and they stare at me. And that's where I left you Sunday night, staring. We didn't even leave it with a conclusion of sorts, but just looking at Christ as he suffered on our behalf. That was trouble, travail, that we looked at in those verses. It goes all the way back to verse number 1 where he declares with that loud voice, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Being abandoned by his Father. What an incredible thing. That's the first time the Son had ever known such a thing, to be abandoned by his Father. In Psalm 22, this entire psalm, we've been following somewhat of a path where David's experience and the experience of Christ on the cross are similar. David was in trouble. And from the context of this psalm, he was in he was in deep trouble. He wasn't sure he was going to survive. By the the words that he spoke here, uh, he figured that uh, his life was over. And we don't know the exact scenario that David uh, faced this, although there were several things in Scripture that could very easily line up to it when Saul was seeking to kill his life, and then even later when his own son Absalom was seeking to take his life. Uh, those are, are concepts that might fit here, that David is suffering in that regard and not sure he would live another day. And so we have seen, though, that what David experienced was really only a sample of what Christ actually experienced. As we have read these same words, we've seen several verses pop up that say, that's definitely something we saw at the cross. The phrase, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Uh, that is one that we see expressed at the cross. The fact that he was uh, despised by the people, Isaiah 53 says, that would be at the cross. That uh, he would have his hands and feet pierced, that's definitely at the cross. That they divide up his garments, that's at the cross. And we've seen those similarities throughout here, and certainly Christ the epitome of this psalm. Yet, 
they are not similar in this one fact, as these might reflect the experiences of David and Christ. David's trouble was resolved, and he did not die. Jesus Christ did die. And then it was resolved in the resurrection. So there is a contrast between these as well as we go into this passage. Tonight is, is as we already know, Good Friday. Interesting set of words. Good Friday. When we think of the death of Christ, we put the word good next to it. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Just this past week, as you know, in the news, there's been that horrible uh, massacre in Kenya. The, the Christians there massacred at that school. And uh, as I was reading that in the uh, online newspaper, uh, there was a place for comments down below. People were typing in their comments. And, and one person typed in these comments that he could not understand why Christians, obviously, I don't believe he was one by his comment anyway, he said, he couldn't understand why Christians considered this such a tragedy if they were going to heaven anyway. And uh, he kept on that theme throughout, everybody trying to, to talk back to explain to him, but he kept on that theme, why, did, why do they call this a tragedy if they were just going to heaven anyway? When you say Good Friday, that's an interesting combination of words as well. Uh, I looked it up a little bit just to see what uh, the, uh, the great source Wikipedia would have to say about this. Um, good, in its uh, term, they said, is contested. Some sources claim that it's from the idea of being pious or holy, uh, the idea of a sacred day, so they use the word good in that regard. And others contend that it's a corruption of God's Friday. And I'd never heard that before, to tell the truth. Uh, but I do know it's been a practice over the years for the organized churches in this world to mark this day as the day of the death of Christ. In some places, it is uh, remembered with great pageantry. Uh, where there's a lot of pomp, there's symbolism, there's ritual, there's certain prayers that are said and certain actions that are done and certain garments that are worn and uh, ritual and certain readings of Scripture. And I'm very sure that Christ's death was not to make us ceremonious, but to make us clean. Christ's death was to not give us a ritual, but to give us a right standing with God. I take advantage of this day that we designate as the death of Christ to speak on his death. Um, his death has tremendous results for us. How can we go through anything in the New Testament where it says we have this, we have this, we have this, and not find a reference to the death of Christ within a few words, within a few verses. We have in Galatians chapter 1 verse 4, for example, it says that He gave Himself for our sins so that He might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. We like being rescued, don't we? 
He gave himself for that. It says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So even my life now that I have and I live, it's because he gave himself for me. In Ephesians 5 verse 2, we're told to walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So it affects our walk, doesn't it? Our Christian behavior and our relationship with one another. We walk in love because Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. We find in Titus chapter 2 verse 14 that he gave himself up to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So we've been purified, we've been redeemed, we've been prepared to serve him and be zealous in that because he gave himself up for us. So we would say there's tremendous result from this death. We talk about our salvation, yes, definitely our salvation, but so much more. Everything about the Christian life is anchored to the death of Christ. Our walk, our love for each other, our our purity, our, our zealousness for good deeds, all these things come together in the fact that he gave himself up for us. Now, as we've made this comparison throughout this passage between David and Christ, there is nothing... David could have done for your soul. Nothing. But this psalm predicts and presents the death of the sacrifice Christ made for your soul. So we see a huge contrast between the two, even as we approach here tonight. Uh, I would say, especially when we get down here to these last three verses we're going to look at, 19, 20, and 21, these these passages show David taking one path and Christ another. And I'll show you what I mean as we go through this passage. Let's look at David's viewpoint first. In verse 19 to 21, But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen. You answer me. Now, maybe tonight you were reading from the King James Version and you spotted a couple of different words in there. Uh, Like in verse 20, where the New American Standard says, uh, uh, deliver my soul from the sword. You would have deliver, or or you would have the idea of my darling instead of my soul. You may say, hmm, that's an interesting word. My darling? What's that? Well, the, even the word life, my only life, life is in italics in the New American Standard Version because that word isn't in there either. Uh, it, it really just said, my only. It was an adjective, standing all by itself. My only. And so they filled it in with words. But the word only here means that which is solitary. It's my only one. And so in, in previous generations, they, they considered, well, if it's the only one, it's, it's the darling. And so that's how that came to be sitting there in the phrase, my darling, which is a reference to my only life. 
in verse 21, you might have also seen, instead of the horns of a wild oxen, you found the horns of a unicorn. And you said, hmm, what's that doing in there? Well, there are references to unicorns in Scripture because it talks about an animal with one horn. Unicorn is the concept of one horn. Maybe not the picture you might have in your mind right now uh, of some horse or something leaping through with a, with a point on the top of its head. Um, people have tried to figure out what do they mean. Did they actually have unicorns in, in Israel back then? Uh, the, some translations use wild oxen. Uh, some think it's a reference to a rhinoceros. Single-horned, uh, very large oxen type of creature. Uh, some say it's more like an antelope. And really, I don't know. Whatever da David meant, he knew it was deadly. And that's what we're going to see here tonight when we cross some of these words that are very interesting, how uh, different translations present them. This is the execution psalm. And David has great concern, and, and rightly so. He mentions in verse 20, the sword. He mentions in verse 20, the power of the dog. He mentions in 21, the lion's mouth. And also in verse 21, the horns of the wild oxen. In a, in a poetical way, I guess you would say, they each represent instruments of death. A mouth, a horn, a, a, the power, and some even say the paw of a dog, and the sword itself. Earlier in verse 16, he used those same concepts of lions and bears and things as representatives for evildoers. His enemies, those who wanted to kill him. And so he likened them to, to that, uh, a band of evildoers. Now, any one of these, sword, power of the dog, the lion's mouth, the horns of the wild oxen, any one of them could inflict a fatal blow. Yet, as David describes them, it is all four that concerns him. I almost picture it like this, as if he's surrounded. He looks this way, and there's the sword. So naturally, if you want to get away, you turn the other direction, right? He turns around and there are the dogs. He says, no, it can't go that way, so I'm going to head this way. And what does he find? The lions. Oh, he can't go there. There's only one way to go. He turns this way, and there's the horn of the wild oxen. Surrounded. There's uh, no exit. There's no escape. These have surrounded him. Earlier it mentioned those who surround him. The bulls of Bashan, in verse 12, surround me, surround me. In other words, as far as he is concerned in this part of the psalm, death is inevitable. There is no way out. Completely cut off. Each one of these are working together in order to strike him down. And notice what, he, what he's trying to protect in the same set of verses, in verse 20. My soul! That's what he's concerned about. In verse 20, my only life! In verse number 21, save me! <laughs> that me stands out there, doesn't it? He's trying to save it. Me, my only life, my soul. 
And all the while, we got to go back to verse number 1. Where is God? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Here he's way over here, surrounded. And he pictures God far off. So far he can't hear my words. I'm groaning. I, I'm groaning as loud as I can. I cry by day. Lord, you don't answer. I cry by night. And I have no rest. I'm surrounded, Lord. I'm surrounded and you're so far from me. So he has this desperate plea. You can feel it as you read these words in verse 19. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver, verse 20. Deliver my soul from the sword. My only life from the power of the dog. Save, he says, in verse 21. Save. That word deliver and the word save, both are in the Greek Septuagint, the Old Testament version in the Greek text. They're both in what they call an aorist imperative, which means, save! This is urgent! This is the strongest way to express an urgent command. You can hear his voice rise. And it also means, uh, now, <laughs> he's not saying, you know, take your time. He, he wants us deliberate. He wants it decisive. He wants it now. He needs it now. Save. Deliver. To read this, you have to raise your voice a little bit just for those words. That's the power of his expression as, he, as he's shouting out. You can picture it, can't you? What else can he do? He's about to have his life cut down. And there's no place to go. So he says, save me. Save me. A deliberate, decisive, immediate action, please. We could understand that desperate scream for help. Even that last phrase on verse number 21, there's, there's even debate on that little phrase where it says, you answer me. Some say, you answered me. And it's uncertain whether he's acknowledging that God has already helped him and heard him, or if he's still pleading that God would answer him. That, that's, that may still fit rather into verse 22 better and beyond. But either way, David represents us pretty well in this passage, I think. When we have scenarios where we think we're in trouble, we, we tend to raise our voice. We tend to plead for help right now. Uh, we have those same human expressions, don't we? Now, I don't think we've ever been surrounded like he has been. With swords and dogs and lions and oxen. Maybe the oxen, for some of you. Or at least cows. But uh, this expression of David is very much like us. We would shout for help at any kind of moment like this as well. We, we would find our lives to be the dearest thing to us, wouldn't we? The old save my skin concept, you know, that kind of thing that uh, we're very good at, and we would do all that we can to protect it. That's David's view here, and we could understand it. Here's the contrast. Where on the cross did Jesus ever plead for help? 
He didn't, did he? You don't hear him on that cross shouting out, Help! From his perspective, this psalm lines up so beautifully as well when we say the sword, the power of the dog, the lion's mouth, the horns of the wild oxen. We use those in a poetical way. They're representing instruments of death. In earlier verses, we see in verse 16, like I just said with David, verse 16, these are the band of evildoers that have encompassed me. We picture a cross and we see the crowd down below there. Any one of these instruments can inflict a fatal blow. But Jesus had many sources of danger there at that cross. The sword, the dog, the lion, the wild oxen. You know, those are a strange combination of, of creatures. Generally, you wouldn't think even they would work together. Oxen and, and lions working together. Uh, dogs. Now, we don't know who's wielding the sword, but in this, usually, we don't see all four of those working together. And neither do we normally see Pharisee and Sadducee and high priests and Roman soldier and Pilate and Jewish crowd all working together for one purpose to have Christ put to death but that's exactly the scene isn't it exactly the scene all of them surrounding him working together to kill him there's no escape there's no, there's no exit here the psalm makes it very clear that death is inevitable. Jesus shouted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But he never shouted help. He never shouted help. You know, that's what the crowd misunderstood. As they watched him on that cross, they mocked him, right? They mocked him. And the words that they said we found in Luke chapter 23. Let's look at these words for a few minutes here. Luke chapter 23 starts in verse 35. Just a handful of verses, but listen to what they say. Luke 23:35. We'll go to verse 39. And the people stood by looking on. And even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if this is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him. Start to see lions and wild oxen and dogs surrounding here. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine. And saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription above him saying, this is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who was hanging there was hurling abuse at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Surrounded by mockers. Yet what does Jesus say? Verse number 46, go down the passage just a little ways. After he talks to the other thief who receives him, 
as his Lord. Verse 46, Jesus cries out with a loud voice, and it wasn't to yell help. says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Commit, trust. My spirit, that precious thing that we're always trying to defend, right? We're trying to protect that thing. That's my life, my only life. That's my, my darling, my precious thing. That's my, my uh, one and only. That's me. Jesus says, into thy hand I commit my spirit. Now, keep that thought on your mind for a moment and turn back to the Psalms. I want to show you another psalm that David wrote, Psalm 31. It's just a little beyond our 22. But in 31, Psalm 31, this is also a lament psalm. And a couple of phrases pop out on this psalm that we also attribute to the cross. In verse number 5 of Psalm 31, Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have ransomed me, O Lord, God of truth. And then down to verse 15, this one stands out to me every time I read this psalm. My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. You know, in these two phrases, into your hand I commit my spirit and my times are in your hand. Jesus purposely left off the rest of those phrases. You have ransomed me, O Lord God of truth. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. Now, he wasn't looking for ransomed. He wasn't looking for deliverance. Now, it wasn't that the Father couldn't do it. Even in the garden, when they went to arrest him, remember, they thought they needed to defend him. So Peter pulls out the sword. And Jesus says, you don't need to do that if, my paraphrase, if I need to defend it, I have 10,000 angels I could call on right now. And they could do a pretty good job. Now, he doesn't go into all that, but they can. I figured this out once before, that the number of angels in that uh, group that he said he could call, somewhere from 6,000 perhaps, or more, compared to an angel in the Old Testament in the days of Isaiah who slew 186,000 men in one night. You start the multiplication going, and before you're through, that host that he could call could eliminate 8 billion people in one night. Do you know what the earth's population is right now? It's 7 billion That's not a hard thing for him to do. To deliver me? Oh, he knew the Father could do that. That wasn't the question. He never asked for it at the cross. He did not ask that the Father would deliver him. He didn't cry out like David and say, Save my soul. One commentator said, We must understand that all the desolation was the experience of one who had entered the sinner's place. Entered the sinner's place. See, death was what Jesus must do 
for us. He must do that if we would ever be truly delivered ourselves. It was our souls that would be ransomed from sin and its terrible penalty. In Isaiah 53, it says in verse 7, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. And Peter added to that in his uh, epistle, chapter 2, verse 23 of the first epistle. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed, for you were continually strained like sheep. But now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. You see, that's why he never called for help. Because he wanted to help us. He didn't want to rescue Because he wanted to rescue us. He didn't say, save me. But his death said, save them. That's why he did that. That's the difference between him and David. The words we sang just a little bit ago, they stand out so, so richly this evening. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. Notice the contrast even in the phrases as he says them. My riches gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, and his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul. Do you, do you think that's true? Demands my soul, my life, my all? What kind of response can we possibly give to this kind of love? This phrase, demands my soul. Think that through the next couple of days. Does not the sacrifice of Christ demand something of us? Jesus never cried out, deliver me, because he was delivering us. He was delivering us. He gave himself for our sins. He gave himself to redeem us. He gave himself because he loved us. That's why I like to call it Good Friday. For what has He done for us? Heavenly Father, we stop at this place here this evening after looking at these words and seeing again the kind of love our Savior has had for us. 
And we say, Father, thank you for sending your Son. How it had to have been so hard to be separated from your Son. Even that moment when you turned your face away and his voice is heard crying out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We cannot fully comprehend the love of the Father for the Son and what that was to crush him and put him to death and to lay upon him the weight of our sin. But you did that because you love us. Our Savior, we do not understand the pain that you endured in the piercing of your hands and your feet, of the thorns upon your brow and the the fist on your face and the pulling of your beard and the whipping on your back and the exhaustion of keeping you up throughout the night. And even before you were praying so earnestly that you were bleeding We do not fully understand the emotional pain of being denied by one who you loved to have a crowd turn on you and ask that you be, demand that you be crucified. To have the religious leaders who were supposed to lead people into your direction hate you like they did to have been there on the cross and have your father turn away to hear the mocking voices we do not know the depth of your emotional pain nor do we understand even the spiritual side of all this that you should take our sin and our shame upon you and know it full well what it is that we do to know it in every facet in every aspect to understand the weight of it to understand the penalty of it for the wages of sin is death and to know that crushing crushing experience of being under the wrath of God we don't understand that fully we, I don't know if we can But you love us, and that we know. And I'm so thankful this evening, as we look upon the death of Christ, that we know why he died. And we know it was for us that he did that. It was to deliver us, to save us, to rescue us, to give us a life that means something. A life that can be walked in love. A life that can be pure. A life that can be lived out for your honor and your glory. A life that you have bought. Truly one that your sacrifice demands of us. You have given to us because you love us. And we're so thankful for this night as we remember what you have done. Impress it deep upon our hearts, Lord. Impress it upon our hearts. And may we be different because of our understanding. A better, maybe, a fuller, maybe, but a good understanding of what you have done 
And we give you the praise for this in Jesus' name. Amen.